Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on Chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at Chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's Chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With a new podcast every day of the Premier League season, this is Football Social Daily. Welcome to Football Social Daily. This is your daily Premier League podcast. We're in the middle of an international break at the moment, but there is still plenty of top flight news to go through. I'll tell you what, though, because it's an international break, no one's got quite as much to do in the footballing world as they normally have. We're also in lockdown at the moment, so there is absolutely no excuse for not leaving us a review on the podcast and telling us what you think of Football Social Daily. I went on our little dashboard thing the other day. See if you can guess how many reviews we've had in the last 30 days. Niall, you can go first. Three. Three. Ian, what do you think? Two. Zero. Bloody zero. (laughs) (laughs) I haven't had a single review in the last 30 days. So if you want to leave us some comments on what you make of the podcast, tell us what you think, leave us a five-star review, you will undoubtedly get a shout-out in the podcast on the coming weeks. You've already heard from Ian and Niall. They are with me on today's podcast. I'm Jim, and we've got loads to talk about today. We have the AQA section of our podcast on a Wednesday, where we attempt to answer a few of your questions, which today contains questions on red cards that should have been questions on the future of Klopp and Guardiola and a whole load more as well. We're going to be talking about a late call-up for Jude Bellingham to the England squad, a surprise call-up for me and a few other people as well. And we're going to kick off with the news on Greg Clark, who has stepped down as the chairman of the FA over comments that he made to MPs about black players, about female footballers and about South Asian players. Comments that he went on to describe as a disservice to the game. Now, he was talking to a group of MPs for a government select committee. It was discussing a potential Premier League bailout of lower league clubs and he was discussing the online abuse that some people receive from social media trolls which is kind of a little bit ironic in a way I guess because he was trying to trying to raise awareness of that issue in some respect so he used the terms coloured footballers to refer to black players an incredibly outdated term suggested that gay players had made a life choice said that young female goalkeepers didn't like having the ball 
struck at them hard. And he also went on to say that there are a lot more South Asians than there were Afro-Caribbeans working in the FA's IT department because they have different career interests. You kind of almost need to hear him saying these words to understand the feeling behind them because they weren't words that were used with any kind of malice at all. And it isn't a case of Greg Clark being a massive racist or making hugely racist statements. But Hmm. what he has done here is he's showed himself to be massively out of touch with modern society and the modern games. And he's used terms that are fundamentally not acceptable now. So I guess the question is, because there was no malice in what he said, it was... I I hesitate to use the word a mistake, but it was on his part a mistake. Was he right to resign, Niall? Yes, 100%. And not just because of what he said yesterday, but because of his performance as FA chairman over the last two to three, maybe four years, however long he's been in the role, should have stepped down long before now. Um, This isn't the first time he's got himself into hot water with using erroneous language, and it's not the first time that he's been put under the microscope for underperforming in his role, which is effectively one of the most important roles in our game, uh, particularly in the English game, and it's a position of power in this country. Being chairman of the FA is a huge, huge position of power. Now, it's important for me to point out and for all of us to point out that we, we speak on this podcast and we're three white blokes. And although it's not up to us to say what Greg Clark meant by those comments, I think it is vitally important for us to say that those, those comments are completely unacceptable. As you mentioned, Jim, they're outdated. It's not up to me to decide whether they're offensive or not. But what I will say is that personally, I don't think that they're acceptable at all. And I think it just goes to show that we've got a dinosaur running our game. Thankfully, now he's stepped away. But this is the point that I think a lot of people are making. And I think this all ties in quite perfectly. Greg Clark is a middle-aged white man who's being defended by some because it was the language that was used in his day. David Attenborough, the TV wildlife presenter, is in his 90s. I don't ever hear him using those sorts of words. So, I mean, I just don't understand why people can't move on with the times. I was taught things in school, and I'm only in my mid-20s, that you are now not allowed to say. I don't say them because it's deemed unacceptable. Just because I was brought up in that manner doesn't mean I can't change how I speak. And particularly when you're in a position of power, you have a duty to understand what you're talking about, when you're talking about it, and how it may come across. Saying I wasn't brought up that way is no excuse. It's absolutely no excuse. What he said was very, very distasteful. Rightly, he's come under fire for it. He should have stepped down before now anyway because of the poor job he's done as the chairman of the FA, in my opinion. So yeah, I think he was right to step down. I find it baffling that people like John Barnes, for example, has come out and defended him and said, oh, yeah, well, you know, in his day, that was an acceptable thing to say. Well, it's not his day. You know, he's called Greg Clark. You can call him Jurassic Clark because he's he's a dinosaur at the top of the game. Because that is the way it's going. I think it's possible to have sympathy for that reason, though, isn't it? It's like you can't... Has he been living under a rock for for, for 10, 15, 20, 30 years? I mean, I'm I'm in my mid-20s. Never once have I referred to someone as coloured, ever. It's not been acceptable for as long as I've been alive, which is a quarter of a century. And he's been chairman of the FA for, for however long, and he's still using that terminology. In a position of power, you cannot use those words. And that is the right decision that's been made that he's stood down. 
I think you're right. It's 100% the right decision. But he kind of reminds me of that uncle that you see at Christmas sometimes who says uncomfortable things about your neighbours when he's had a couple of drinks. And it's it's more of him being out of touch with what's going on. And there's no excuse for being out of touch. So you don't want to excuse it in any way. And it's definitely not the man who should be at the head of the game, particularly in the world we're in at the moment, where right now the world's making football world is making bigger strides towards equality and inclusiveness than it has done in years and years and years with like the campaigns like the BLM campaign and stuff like that. So he's 100% not the right man to be at the head of the FA. But at the same time, and I, I, I hesitate again to say sympathetic because I'm not massively sympathetic to what he said. I'm sympathetic to him because I don't think the comments he made came from a bad place, if that makes sense. Okay, okay. Well, then in that case, I won't use the example I was about to use. But let's just say, for instance, Donald Trump, and I don't want to get political on this. Donald Trump sometimes says inflammatory things that are unacceptable for a president to say of any country. From a completely different place that comes. Hundred percent. I see where you're coming from. You're seeing it come, but it doesn't matter really. No. Effectively, it doesn't matter whether you meant it or not. If you offend, if you've offended someone, and he's offended a lot of people by his comments that he made yesterday then you need, to, you need to face the punishment for that. And the punishment is that he's lost his job. He wasn't the right man for the job in the first place. And it's sad that it's taken for him to, to for it to get to this point, for someone to realise that the leadership at the top of the FA is wrong. And like I said before, I think it ties in all quite nicely that this is a, a middle-aged white man who's probably quite privileged, who's completely shown himself up. And it just goes to show that we do need someone more understanding, more progressive, forward thinking, bright, younger, at the top of the game, who's able to push the game forward through the diversity and the issues that we face. Greg Clark isn't that man, and I'm glad to see the back of him, to be honest. Well, that ties in quite nicely to my next question, because we could debate the rights and wrongs of this scenario, but there aren't many rights to this scenario. It's pure (laughs) wrongs, unfortunately. So where did the FA go from here, Ian? What is the next step they take in order to turn this around? Well, um... I, I I don't think that any um, sort of middle-aged or or sort of maybe slightly older than middle-aged um, white company director uh, will get their head around this situation. I think it's impossible. I think that none of us um, who um, come from a, a background that's relatively privileged uh, are able to fully understand the battles with which the um, the black community and and ethnic minority community um, in general face in order to get through into the game. Um, recently, I, I did a podcast, actually, which was um, um, for the same company uh, as, uh, as Sports Social, um, which was um, with Effie Inora, who is, um, who's written a, a, a number of books and is a lecturer, uh, particularly on, on racism issues in, in football. Um, his sister is um, a former Team GB athlete um, and his brother played football, Ifeonora, you may remember, from uh, sort of back into the 80s, early 90s, played for a number of clubs. And really, the, the, I was staggered the amount of um, obstacles that are put in the way of of players from black and ethnic minority backgrounds. They do not have the same opportunities. None of us can understand the sort of things that they have to come up against. I mean, he was saying that he doesn't know of a single black footballer Mm. that hasn't had a death threat anywhere. 
and and you know these kind of things are absolutely incredible. You know, some of them have bullets sent in the post yeah. from fans. You know, we can't understand the sort of things that go on, and and until you have, you know, and so I think that it should be from someone with that experience who who maybe should be, uh, you know, certainly involved at the higher levels of the FA, uh, and um, and and that's the only way they're going to be able to to sort of get in a new direction. Somebody that has personal experience, because if we don't have personal experience, it's hard to really understand just how bad some of the problems are in football and, and we keep saying that you know that we're, we're kicking racism out and things are getting better and we're more inclusive now but you say that to some of the people that are involved in the sport now and I think they would uh, they would definitely disagree with you because I think in some respects things haven't changed in some respects things are getting worse in some areas you know the fact that he is of the background that he is uh, uh, and from the, uh, the the upbringing that he's from I think that might makes it even more difficult to understand how his comments might have hurt some people and and I think that those two things combined um is it, fair reason for him to no longer uh, hold the position I think he made that position untenable as soon as he made the comment particularly in a political space as well which makes it even worse in my opinion so yeah I, th- I think that the right decision has been made I think that's the huge challenge that the FA now face is that Greg Clark is is an individual but his opinions and his outlook won't be unique within the upper echelons of the FA. And this won't be the first time he has voiced these opinions or said these phrases. It's just this time it was said in a forum where there was public access to hearing him say those things. So I think the challenge now for the FA is to put someone in that position who can move the game forward in some respect in terms of inclusivity. And the bigger challenge, and this is, this is a, we're getting deep here, it's a societal problem. And I spoke to um, Effie recently as well, Ian, for a podcast that's coming up very soon called Football Stories, where we look at different issues within football. And he was saying that for years, uh, BAME players have not been encouraged into positions of yeah. leadership. So people within the sport aren't being encouraged into positions of leadership. So there aren't many black captains in the Premier League for example. So there's an issue there for actually finding the individual who can lead this project forward. And let's, let's temper our expectations slightly. It took 40 years of campaigning for even the Rooney rule or something similar to that to get considered in the Premier League. So the idea there's going to be this massive cultural change overnight is probably a little bit ridiculous, but getting the right person in that role to lead it is vitally important, I think, where we stand. And and don't forget as well, when when um, Greg Clark took over the job, he's one of his things was he was he was going to modernise football. He was gonna he was going to be the man to deal with all these situations. And then here he is, sat in front of MPs, saying all the things that he originally said that needed kicking out of football. And that, that's that's the other part of it as well. It's kind of you know his old manifesto was modernising the game, and uh, and here he is, you know, sounding like a. You know, at best, uh, your uh, your inappropriate uncle, and, and and at worst, you know, w- you know, much worse than that. And 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 I get what you're saying as well, Jim. You know, it is it is the kind of language that was used a few years ago, um, and isn't acceptable now. And so, yeah, it's pure ignorance, really, to 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 carry on using that language. And I can see why it would, but. Um, and, and I'm sure there were many people elsewhere in the game using it. In fact, I've heard it come out of the mouths of some people involved in the sport today, uh, years ago. I don't know if they're still using that, that language, but it was, it was what people did say. But that's no excuse for it. Times have changed. Um, and um, certainly if you're the man right at the top of the FA and you're supposed to be battling these issues, you should be a little bit more aware of it. 
Let's move on to more positive stories involving the FA because there has been a surprise England call-up ahead of the games over the next couple of, over the next week or so that kicks off with a friendly against Ireland tomorrow night. Borussia Dortmund midfielder Jude Bellingham has been called up to replace both James Ward-Prowse and Trent Alexander-Arnold, so he's replacing two players in the England squad. Um, undoubtedly, this guy is a talent, and I'm. Sp- if I'm honest, it's not a player I know a huge amount. He's played most of his football in the Championship with Birmingham. He's then moved over to Dortmund. I don't watch a huge amount of Bundesliga football either, so I've heard about him, but I haven't seen him play that many times. Do we think he's actually going to get a chance here, Niall? Or is he purely in that England squad for the experience of being part of the setup? The way you introduced him there reminded me of when Owen Hargreaves first popped up into the England team and everyone was like, who is this guy that speaks with well. a Canadian accent <laughs> um, and plays in Germany? Nobody knew who he was. Um, I think obviously there's a greater awareness of Jude Bellingham and the way that football is now with social media and so much coverage that you do kind of get to see a little bit more of these young players before they do emerge. Um, the amazing thing is, is he's only 17 and he only turned 17 in the summer. He's an extremely young player. Uh, I saw him play last season at Fratton Park actually when Birmingham City played against Portsmouth in the League Cup Um, we beat Birmingham 3-0 but they had one standout player and that was Bellingham and everyone was saying you know this guy's tip for a bright future but little did I think that that future would be at Borussia Dortmund but then again we've seen a lot of English talent being kind of scouted by the German clubs Bayern Munich uh, were after Callum Hudson-Odoi for at least two windows in a row I can remember from Chelsea Um, we've seen the likes of Reese Nelson go over to Germany and play Adamola Lukman's gone over there and played and of course the big example is Jadon Sancho but the fact is he's not even played 50 league games um, in his entire career which only started in 2019 in terms of senior league football um, and he's already getting a call up to the England squad it's exciting I think it's good for the future of England however if you're talking about horses for courses I think Ross Barkley would have been a better choice. And I said this on the podcast earlier this week. Ross Barkley's in good form. Jack Grealish is performing really well. Those two together um, have something slightly special and it's working for Aston Villa. So why wasn't Barkley considered? He's got caps uh, already. He's got that experience of playing for the England senior team. Um, But then again, I don't want to slight Bellingham because he's playing for one of the biggest clubs um, in Germany, if not in Europe, in Borussia Dortmund. Um, Yet to score for them. Only played a handful of games this season for them. But I guess Gareth Southgate's just trying to give him an introduction into what life is like in the senior squad because there's no doubt that in the future he will be a part of the England setup. There's no doubt about that. And we've seen Southgate have form for this before. I mentioned Callum Hudson-Odoi earlier. He did the very same thing with Callum Hudson-Odoi, called him up to the England squad before he had even made his first team debut for Chelsea Mm. or his Premier League debut for Chelsea. I can't remember which one specifically. Um, But it's not the first time we've seen this. Uh, So I think if you're an Aston Villa fan, you'd be sat there pointing at Jack Grealish, uh, at Ross Barkley rather, and going, what about this guy? He's performing really, really well. But understandably, Borussia Dortmund are a big club. I'm sure Gareth Southgate's been watching how he's been getting on over there in the Bundesliga. And uh, it's exciting to see him get given a chance. Let's not forget there is a friendly against the Republic of Ireland. And maybe that might be where he gets his first taste of senior three Lions football rather than the qualification games. But... You know, it's an exciting period uh, to be an England supporter with all the young players that are coming through. So hopefully he does well and takes his chance. But personally, I would have gone for Barkley. It's a great thing for Bellingham to be involved, Ian, undoubtedly. But if you are Ross Barkley or maybe one or two other midfielders in the Premier League as well, would you be feeling a little bit miffed that he's been called up ahead of you this season? 
Well, possibly. I mean, you don't know what's going on in the background, whether, you know, those those players have, have sort of agreed to sort of sit it out for, for whatever reason. We don't know their condition, I suppose. Um, yeah, I can see why you would be miffed, though, if you were fully fit and hoping to get in the team and then, uh, you know, a 17-year-old uh, comes along that's uh, sort of not really played a, a, a huge amount so far in their career and, and, and gets that spot. But I think, as as Niall said, a lot of it is down to experience. I'm sure, you know, it is very different probably being among different players, certainly that calibre of players all in, in one space, um, probably how they go about their training regime and their routine and, and stuff that when they're all together as a team maybe is different from what they used to and undoubtedly there are probably differences in how the England team play to, to what he's used to playing with uh, with Borussia Dortmund you know there's those, probably those little intricacies to kind of get in your mind for for me next time and I say if it's a friendly game as well uh, in there then um, probably no harm in him um, you know getting his first cap and, and getting a, a part of the team but I, I I would be though. Um, personally, I, I'm I'm delighted that um, I would be delighted if if some of my players weren't taking part in the England team because I think you know as as a Leeds fan, um, the last international break has, has absolutely demolished that team um, with uh, with the players with Spain that came back injured, player from Germany came back injured, um, Calvin Phillips um, came back injured from England, and uh, you know it's absolute disaster the last international break from that from a, from a domestic point of view. So I would say if you if you if your players are not on international duty, getting roughed up uh, wherever they are, then, uh, you know, th- th- there's, th- there's that silver lining to take, I suppose. I think you're probably spot on, actually. A few players will actually be quite grateful of a little rest at the moment, the way the fixtures are piling up, rather than gutted they didn't yeah. make the England squad. So you probably got a point there. Have a day off. We'll talk more about England's fixtures coming up tomorrow on the Football Social Daily podcast. Make sure you subscribe to that so you never miss an episode. We're also going to talk about Brighton and Hove Albion soon. They are the focus on our floodlight focus today. We're going to be speaking to Albion Analytics about their season so far. But next, we're going to be answering your questions. It's AQA Day and we'll do that next on Football Social Daily. Football Social Daily. Subscribe to the podcast now so you never miss an episode. the latest Premier League news for your team. Just ask Open Sport Social. Welcome back to Football Social Daily. It's time to deal with some of your questions that have come in via social media. If you've got a question for next week's podcast where we answer your questions, we do it on a Wednesday. You can get your questions in via our Twitter account, at the Sports Social, via Instagram, Sports Social Official, via Facebook. Just search Sports Social there and all those links are on our website where you can find a load of other decent football content as well sports-social.co.uk but let's kick on with questions first one comes from Mr List who says do you think managers like Jurgen Klopp and Pep Guardiola could possibly remain in the Premier League for the remainder of their careers and reach the heights of the likes of Ferguson and Wenger you can go first on this one, Ian. Can you see a 60-year-old Pep Guardiola still managing in the Premier League? Yeah, well, which one's Ferguson and which one's Wenger? And uh, which <laughs> yeah. one's having a, a you know a reliable FA Cup run every year and, uh, and all that kind of stuff? Um, I think that they are really sort of starting to take that kind of mantle as the two big managers, aren't they? The, the, the Klopp versus Guardiola battle is always a, a fascinating one, just purely because I think that they're both managers that have uh, achieved a lot uh, in their time and, um, and, 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 and we know that we're going to have a, a quality kind of battle between the two of them. 
Um, I don't really think that Klopp and Guardiola really have this sort of needle that um, Ferguson and Wenger had. I mean, it was a bit of a sort of a love-hate relationship for, for much of the season. Then you'd see them at the end of the season, one of them had won the title and they were all best mates again. Um, it, it does seem to be a bit more cordial between Klopp and uh, Guardiola. Do I see them um, seeing out the remainder of their time in the Premiership and, uh, you know, leaving with a painting of a Spitfire, um, you know, gloriously when they're 75 <laughs> years old? I'm not sure. I don't think um, maybe Klopp might. Uh, Guardiola seems to sort of have more itchy feet. And, uh, we, we, you know, we were only talking a couple of weeks ago as to whether Guardiola might be looking for uh, for new horizons. So uh, I, I'm not sure that it will last that long. I think Guardiola probably will want to try his hand somewhere else in the world at, at some point. Maybe Scotland. You know, he's, he's not tackled that yet. Um, <laughs> but try and get uh, Motherwell to the, to the title. You know, that, that could be a, a challenge for him. But, um, yeah, I, I, but I think Klopp, Klopp seems to be happy. I think, um, you know, Liverpool um, at the moment is a very stable club, of course. And, uh, yeah, maybe he might last the longest of the two. But I don't think they'll both still be here in 20 years' time, no. I think that's a good point. In terms of happiness, Pep Guardiola just seems permanently frustrated in England, whether it's with the tactics or the style of football or just the attention from the press. He doesn't like it, whereas Jurgen Klopp seems to relish the opportunity he's got up in Liverpool. And I wonder whether mm. that makes it almost more difficult for him to stay in the Premier League because he is so tied to Liverpool now and we're in a world where I don't think we're going to see managers managing at one football club for the next 20 years. We talk about cycles and we talk about a need for change and a need for development and new ideas and new faces coming in. So whether a manager can stay at a club for 20 years and keep on maintaining a winning formula is a massive question mark for me. But then if that isn't the case where does Klopp go from here he, I mean he's wearing Beatles t-shirts and hmm. talking about how much he loves Liverpool as a city at the moment you couldn't see him going to like Everton or Manchester United or or, or even Manchester City now because of that rivalry so I guess that kind of limits how long he can stay in the Premier League as well to a certain extent Niall. Yeah I guess so and I think actually it's interesting you talk about Jurgen Klopp being this smiley laughing guy in press conferences I think he's quite a grumpy character as well a fair amount of the time and I think the reason that these two characters Guardiola and Klopp uh, are so miserable is because they just love winning they're absolutely obsessed and addicted to winning and you always find those people that are Jose Mourinho included are the most miserable because when they're not winning, they're not happy. And winning is the hardest thing to do in football. Um, in terms of whether those two, and particularly Klopp, now that we've spoken about Guardiola, can stay in a role uh, as long as Wenger and Sir Alex Ferguson did. Yes, in terms of their ability. They are 100% good enough to do that. Whether they're backed or not, and whether the ownership changes at Liverpool or Manchester City respectively, um, for that period of time, I think will be a big determining factor into whether they can stay. Because, of course, the longer that you stay is probably determined by the amount of success you have on the pitch. And you look at the likes of Wenger and Ferguson, particularly Ferguson, um, when the ownership changed at Manchester United in 2005, a lot of the players that he had that went on to win the league title in the Champions League in 2008 were players that he kind of brought in before that takeover that had kind of been with him. Uh, a lot of the class of 92 were still there. Some top other players like Rooney and Ronaldo that had been brought in before that takeover. Whereas after that, things did start to decline on the pitch. I think that was a natural regression for United anyway. And then obviously it culminated with him winning the league in 2013 and then retiring. But there were rumours that he was going to retire before that, a good five, six years before that happened. So Constantly. certainly, uh, yeah, absolutely. Almost every season it was, is Sir Alex going to retire, go out on top? Now, 
I don't I don't think we're going to see that level of domination from Klopp uh, and Guardiola. And the reason I don't think that they're going to stay for that long, it's not that they're not good enough to do it because they absolutely are. It's just the scrutiny of the game has increased millions. It, like I mean, tenfold doesn't even come close. It's more like a hundredfold because back in the time when Sir Alex Ferguson and Arsene Wenger first came to the Premier League, social media wasn't a thing. Internet forums had barely been a thing um, when even sort of the turn of the century when things started to pick up online. Um, so obviously, like I'm saying, not every game was was being televised and broadcast. Not every word was being hung on in a press conference. And I think the pressure and the scrutiny and the clamour um, for change at the top of football clubs in terms of management, I think that is that is the key as to why managers won't stay um, for as long uh, as they used to in the Sir Alex and Wenger days but if you look at Jurgen Klopp and Liverpool have a long-standing history of giving managers long periods of time it's only in probably the last 15 years that they haven't done that the likes of Hodgson and Kenny Dalglish and Brendan Rodgers etc Jurgen Klopp is the fifth longest serving manager in English football in the professional game five years and 32 days now Sean Dyche spending eight years at Burnley is a bit of an anomaly in itself but if you look down the list here you're talking about someone in the top 10, top 15 longest serving managers in the English Football League. Like, for instance, Daniel Farker is in the top 15 of longest serving managers. The And Nuno Espirito Santo as well, in terms of being um, longest serving managers in the Football League. They joined in 2017, their respective clubs. They've been there three years and they're in the top 15 out of 92 clubs in the Football League in terms of the length of their managerial tenancy. So I guess I suppose what I'm trying to say is, yes, they are good enough to do that. However, I don't think they will because the landscape has changed. The the, the way football is has changed so dramatically. The fact that Sean Dyche is like the, the third longest serving manager in the Football League at this moment in time, um, behind only Gareth Ainsworth at Wickham, who's also been there since 2012. It's just, it's baffling. It's baffling because managers aren't given time. Um, you can look through the list. There's lists online. There's lists on Wikipedia. You'd be surprised, actually. You'd be surprised that how high up some of these managers are on the list. They've only been there three years, three seasons, and they're already one of the longest serving managers in the Football League. So, yeah, I think that's the reason why that probably we won't see them around for as long as uh, Fergie and Wenger. Very different football environment to how it was 15, 20 years ago. Next question is from Daryl Noble. And he says, rather than surprise title winners, is there any teams you think could be considered surprise relegation candidates in the Premier League this season? So I'm going to let you both nominate one team each for this. Uh, I'm going to tell you the teams you're not allowed to nominate. West Brom, Fulham, Brighton, West Ham, Palace, Southampton, Burnley. Because I think if any of them went down, it wouldn't necessarily have been a massive surprise considering how they were regarded at the start of the season. So, go on, Ian. You can go first on this one. Who do you think you'd have down as a surprise relegation candidate? Well, I'm looking at it, and I, and I half expected you to mention this team when you were saying the ones that we couldn't mention. But um, sitting in my studio where I am on the on the northeast coast, um, just on the fringes of Sunderland, nothing would bring more greater joy to the local community <laughs> than seeing Newcastle United getting sucked into a, a relegation mm. dogfight. I think that it's always something that's possible to happen there. I mean, there's regularly a, a lack of investment. I mean, I think this year they have um, happened to get some you know, some players in that uh, seem to be performing, and uh, Steve Bruce undoubtedly doing doing a decent job. But you know, we're, we're early days, and um, you know, if if um, if Brighton can be sucked into it, then uh, then certainly. Newcastle can they're on 11 points 
you know, it could go either way. And um, I, I reckon that uh, there is a you know a half decent chance of of a, of a Newcastle calamity. You know, a few injuries to key players. Mike Ashley uh, refusing to in, to invest if uh, if and when the chance comes around um, later in the season. Um, and um, you know, before you know it, they're uh, they're in a they're in a dogfight with Burnley. And uh, what could go wrong from there? I think that's a very astute call, that one. If you listen to Marley yesterday speaking on the podcast, he had a 20-minute tirade on Newcastle <laughs> and their tactical inflexibility. And I think that's exactly what could do for them in the end because they have done all right so far this season. They've picked up some decent points, but because Steve Bruce has his way of playing and doesn't seem to really be able to adapt, teams are going to be able to spot that and find ways to counter it. And those points mm. are going to be diminishing as the season goes on. Yeah, definitely. And I think... Just taken away from what Marley said yesterday, even if you take Steve Bruce out of the equation, look at the teams below them. Manchester United, 14th. They're better than Newcastle. They're going to get better results than Newcastle. They're going to pick up. Leeds United create bagfuls of chances. They're better than Newcastle. Brighton play a decent brand of football, but you know, as we say, they might get sucked into it. Fulham and West Brom, don't worry about them. And Burnley and Sheffield United, you're probably likely to see those two pick up points and pick up form at least some point during the season so that was Marley's concern if you look below Newcastle Manchester United Leeds Burnley and Sheffield United are four teams below them they're in 13th by the way four teams below them who he thinks could probably pick up some form and overtake Newcastle United and I think that's probably where his concerns come from so I think it's a good shout from Ian. Who would you go for then Niall is there anyone else you want to throw into the mix you mentioned Sheffield United there I mean they're rock bottom at the moment I don't think anyone would have picked them to go down at the beginning of the season. They had a bad injury, didn't they? Jack O'Connell, their centre-back, has had a long-term knee injury and I think that's really affected them. Uh, John Fleck's been injured as well and uh, depressingly, the behind-closed-doors Premier League table sees Sheffield United rock bottom. They've really suffered more than any other club without fans in the stadium, particularly Bramall Lane, where they fire up that greasy chip butty song, don't they, before every game and get the fans whipped up into a bit of a frenzy ready for the action. Um, so, yeah, I mean, Sheffield United, I think the problem is, is if you look at those players last season, you see how are these players doing that? Chris Wilder's doing an unbelievable job. They definitely overperformed. And, you know, the cliche is to say second season syndrome, but there, are, there have been reasons as to why Sheffield United have been down in the bottom um, clutches of the league at this moment in time. Burnley, the same. You look at them and it, their lack of investment, as we've mentioned countless times on the podcast, and their threadbare squad um, combined with the injuries has really not been a, a welcome potion for Sean Dyche. So, yeah, Sheffield United, I mean, really, I wouldn't say that they were surprised relegation candidates now because of the start they've made uh, and, and actually when it all comes down to it you look at the size of the club and the players they've got you know bottom half of the table is probably where you'd expect them to finish I said always at the start of the season that Leeds United might find it more difficult than people might realize and I don't want to <laughs> rub, rub any salt into any wounds here but they're not going to get relegated, are they? Um, I don't think they're going to get relegated, no. But I, I said at the start of the season when I saw lots of Leeds fans suggesting they'd finish top six, top ten, I said, at Christmas, if you're in the top ten, I'll come onto the podcast and do a groveling apology because I just can't see how Leeds United are going to end up in the top ten in the Premier League. Now, they're 15th at the moment. They've played some unbelievable football this season. They've created some ridiculous chances and scored some great goals. But they keep conceding four they keep conceding goals at the back and I think that until they tighten up at the back, they're going to struggle. Um, so they're 15th at the moment. There's no reason why they can't get sucked into a relegation battle. I don't think they will. 
and I don't think they will go down. But w I wouldn't be surprised if Leeds do get dragged down into it. Let's not forget they're a newly promoted side. They've been away from the Premier League for 16 years. They're a very, very good team, but sometimes great teams don't get the job done. And Look at Norwich last season, played some decent football, got relegated, stone dead bottom of the Premier League. I don't think the same will happen for Leeds United, by the way. I just think that I wouldn't be shocked if they got sucked into the battle, although it might be a surprise for some. I think the thing with Leeds is, uh, and, and yeah, there are, there are, the thing with Leeds, uh, probably more than, than any other club, is the fans are never happy. You know, they got to the Champions League semi-final and there was always fans, you know, sort of an absolute meltdown, the fact that they didn't actually go to the final. And if they got to the final, if they didn't win the Champions League, it won't be enough. And if they won the Champions League, then there'll be something else that <laughs> they should have won it by more goals or, you know, there's always something. Um, Leeds fans... Uh, probably some of them are getting a bit ahead of themselves and the ones that um, are sensible I don't think um, really had any dreams of being in the top 10 or, or, or the top 6 or even the top 4 or, or, or winning the league you know there's one or two people sort of moving oh we could do a Leicester well no we're not going to do that um, you know, staying in the Premier League is the first aim for, for Leeds for sure and that's certainly I would say Marcelo Bielsa's aim is staying in the league um, you know anything sort of uh, 15th would be absolutely fine I think for for a first season Leeds's issue as always is going to be injuries because of the intensity at which they play um, and as we've seen some players have, have gone down injured and ironically they've all gone down injured really on international duty rather than on, on domestic duty and uh, that's why they've kind of suffered um, undoubtedly over the last few matches with um, with not having Calvin Phillips and um, Pablo Hernandez is is aging a little um, Rodrigo was just getting into his stride and he's caught coronavirus um, and then uh, there's Lorente who I don't think really played for Leeds yet he got injured straight away playing for Spain so you know if they get all their first starting 11 back they'll, they'll be absolutely fine but um, again injuries could be the downfall as we mentioned with, with Newcastle you know um, if they have to go to a plan B uh, is Leeds as plan B good enough I would say it's probably better than the other teams down there <laughs> if I'm honest so uh, yeah I don't think there's any major concern but uh, yeah could happen you never know let's do one more question very quickly before we move on to our floodlight focus today last one comes from Ruben who says judging by the example set by Maguire's tackle on D oh, how do you say that Everton player's name Dinya is that how you say it Dinya yeah, I think so there we yeah. go that's another classic gym pronunciation of a football <laughs> player's name um, and Pickford's tackle on how do you say Van, Van Dijigaga so Van, Van Dyke uh, can players <laughs> can players do what they like once the ball is not in play and not get booked so essentially we're talking about a couple of big incidents recently where players have committed clear fouls on other players but seemingly got away with it because there was an earlier <laughs> incident that has the players being called back for. So are we in a bit of a situation where the rules need looking at here, Niall? I swear we say this every time something controversial happens in the Premier League in terms of a decision. Should we look at the rules and think about changing them? Um, <laughs> to be honest, I, I think there is an element of sarcasm in this question here from Ruben. Can players do what they like once the ball is not in play and not get booked? Well, no, well, not really. They can't. The, particularly after the Van Dyke thing, we saw a load of people saying... Oh, so can you just go and thump a player after an offside now and get away with it? Which is a bit of a disingenuous well, question. Well, ask Eric Cantona how that goes down if you want to karate kick a fan in the chops and see what happens then. Um, you know, you know, ask one of the players to pull their shorts down and uh, just stand there and see what happens then. I'm pretty sure you'd be seeing some cards <laughs> being flashed around. Point. But yeah, I think yeah. that this is something that just is starting to sound like sour grapes. 
I feel really bad for Dean. Uh, I feel really bad for um, those players that have been hurt, um, particularly Van Dyke, who's had his season finished with a knee injury. I feel bad. But the more we talk about this, the more it's starting to sound like sour grapes. And you can keep going back to that Van Dyke t- challenge. What more do you want us to say other than Pickford's challenge was shocking? He should have been retrospectively banned. He wasn't. What do you want us to do? What's talking about it going to do? It's not going to do anything. I mean, we've seen petitions being sent to Parliament for Jordan Pickford to be banned and for the rules to be changed. I mean, listen, yeah, I understand people's anger about it. Um, and yes, there probably is issues in terms of the way that the VAR is being implemented. I'm still anti-VAR. I have been since day one, since a year before it was brought in. I've hated it. I still don't like VAR. I think it's ruining the game. It's sapping the enjoyment out of football, at least my enjoyment anyway, particularly now as well that, that we're watching games from home. You sat there and people might say it's entertaining, but is it entertaining watching someone get a protractor out and draw lines and all of this stuff? I don't think it is personally. That's just my opinion. But certainly, if we take the question from Ruben, judging by the example set by Maguire's tackle on Dean and Pickford's tackle on Van Dyke, can players do what they like once the ball is not in play? You can't go back and retrospectively book someone. You can go back and retrospectively ban someone if the play's been bad enough to warrant them getting sent off. You can't go back and ret- retrospectively book them. Um, if the ball's not in play and something happens and the referee doesn't see it, that is up to the video assistant referee to step in and see it uh, and make, help make that decision. Um, obviously, that's not happening at the moment. And I think, again, it boils down to the fact that the officiating in this country is not up to the standard it should be. It just isn't. It's as simple as that. And that's why that's why VAR was brought in in the first place. But let's not forget those people operating the VAR are the same people that are refereeing matches week in, week out. And refereeing is a really hard job. And I'm loath to slag off referees because I've refereed a few games in my life before. And it's difficult. It's hard to do. And, you know, it's difficult to, to slag them off. But I just don't think they help themselves. I really don't think they help themselves. I don't. I, I think this is a bit of a, a pernickety question as well. Can players do what they want? No, of course they can't. The referees have made mistakes. It's a bit crap. Let's just get over, get over it and get on with it. Van Dyke will come back and he'll be awesome. So I'm not. In, I, I'm not entirely sure the use of VAR necessarily applies to this situation either because I, I was actually. I got really boring and got the F the IFAB law book out this morning and tried to Rock work out. Yeah, I know that's my life. <laughs> to try and work out actually what the criteria was around this. I'm not going to read the laws or quote them because that's dead boring. But essentially, after an offside decision or another incident has been called, the action can only be taken beyond that. If it's a foul after that, that's it. No action could be taken. If it's serious foul play or violent conduct, then you can make an argument for some kind of action, be it a red card or a yellow card. And whether, let's take the the Pickford-Van Dyke situation, whether that was classed as violent conduct, probably not, or definitely not. Serious foul play, maybe there's an argument for that as well. But that's when retrospective action or action can be taken by the referee. But as with all these things, it's open to interpretation. And where does the line come in terms of where VAR can get involved? Because you don't want VAR looking at every single incident through a game. I think largely it's used for incidents that directly result in potential goal opportunity or goals being scored. And and in that case, it didn't. So there, it should maybe be left up to the, the referee. But it's it's what I mean, we we argue one way and then we argue the other way, don't we? And either it's the VAR being used too much or it's VAR not being used enough. At some point, you've just got to let the man in the middle make a call. And he made it on these scenarios, situations. 
Yeah, but surely I think with with VAR, uh, whilst you've got somebody sat in a box somewhere uh, elsewhere in the country watching these games and, and, and issuing their thoughts, if you're a referee on the pitch and you've got a player who's clearly in a lot of pain and has suffered some sort of you know big injury that you you've not seen how that actually occurred, surely there's probably scope for you to be able to just you know go and watch a replay just to sort of double check what happened there. Um, and 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 sort of at least be prepared for the question afterwards. Mm. Then you know, as the facility is there, the screen is there. Surely you should be able to go over and just hang on a minute. I didn't see how you uh, ended up to be on the stretcher. Let me just sort of double check what what you know. And, and surely there's there's players in his face screaming about what's just happened. You know, you'd think that there'd be a bit of scope there just to sort of double check and and at least you know be aware of of the situation. Um, if if not, you know, take action. If you know what I mean. But then you can potentially get in a situation where people are, we get more play acting than we have now as people I think try this, and get yeah. the VAR induced. I think this rule would only apply to incidents involving Jordan Pickford. That would be the rule. <laughs> I think a lot of Liverpool fans Going would be very, very happy about that scenario. I think that's the right answer. Uh, thank you very much for all your questions this week. We'll do it again next Wednesday. AQA, any question answered, let us know what you want to ask via our social media channels or via the sports social website sports-social.co.uk right we're going to turn our attention to brighton next we're going to be speaking to albion analytics as part of our floodlight focus that's on the way on football social daily football social daily find more great sport at sport-social.co.uk to hear the latest premier league news for your team just ask open sport social Welcome back to Football Social Daily. It is time to shift our focus to one Premier League club with floodlight focus. And today we're putting Brighton and Hove Albion under the spotlight. And to do just that, I've got Liam from Albion Analytics on the line. How are you doing, Liam? I'm great, thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm not too bad, thanks. Earlier on in the podcast today, we were having a bit of a chat about surprise relegation candidates. And Brighton did come up in that conversation I'm not entirely sure they'd be surprise relegation candidates, but at this stage of the season, we're eight games in, are you worried about potential relegation? And if it did happen, if the worst did happen and you went down, would it be a surprise to you? Um, I think we have to prepare for, for that battle. And I think that's maybe part of the problem of uh, what the club wants to aspire to be now is also being realistic and acknowledging that, OK, we can want to achieve things. But as we, I think Bournemouth showed sort of last season, that you know you can be a semi-established Premier League side and, and still quite easily get dragged into it. Um, and it's good as sort of the, the style of football that we're trying to play is at the moment. Um, you know, we're, we're having some issues in front of goal, having some issues defending our own goal as well. Um, and if you don't pick up points, then, you know, very, very easily you can get dragged into it. Um, it of course, we're, we're all fearful of relegation because we are we are conscious of some, some very good talent at the club that, you know, there's players that would likely move on who, you know, we don't know if we don't know if we'd ever find a replacement for someone like Lewis Dunk. So, um, for, for for me, putting aside all, all the analytics work that I do as a fan, my, my first port of call is always, OK, can we avoid relegation and then we can build from there? If we start looking at pushing top 10 too early and, and then we end up, you know, being nowhere near it, OK, so, so be it. But, you know, if, if we can, I, I always look at, you know, the magic 40 points, I say, can, can we sort of push to 40 um, and then go from there? Anything on top of that really is a bonus as far as I'm concerned. I mean, you mentioned the good football that Brighton are playing at the moment and they are playing nice football under Graham Potter and that was the entire point in bringing him in in the first place. But now you find yourself potentially looking at a relegation battle. 
does it feel like it's worth it? That kind of the ambition to play better football, but maybe battling at the wrong end of the table each season versus maybe what someone like Burnley traditionally do, maybe not so much this season, but play ugly football, but at the same time secure that Premier League status. Of course, and this is the real balance now, I think more so in modern football, is that there's a, an increasing demand on sort of the aesthetics of, of your play. Um, and I think the flip side of it now is that a lot of the people who were really, really maybe enticed, almost a bit seduced, I, I suppose, for lack of a better word, by sort of the, the football early on from Potter last season, are becoming probably more increasingly frustrated by the fact that, you know, we're now not scoring goals in the, well, uh, you know, in the first game against Burnley, it was the first game against scoring, but, you know, you know missing chances, um, to, to be more fair and, you know, perhaps having a lot of the ball uh, but not outscoring teams or having low-scoring games, um, yeah, not not necessarily using the ball to perhaps, you know, wipe the forward teams. Not exactly. Besides Newcastle, um, you know, we've, we've not led by two or more goals in a game. The, the most we, we've led by is, is one goal, which is fine. Um, but for people that want to see us really, you know, go out and really sort of, you know, do what City and Liverpool have done to teams where you really sort of dispatch them and, and really put them to the sword, if you like, I think that's become increasingly frustrating to people. I think I, I can really sort of see, because um, to be honest with you, I wasn't um, perhaps the biggest fan of the Potter appointment in the first place. I thought Houston was perhaps quite unfairly um, sort, sort of sacked it in a way. Um, came around to it, obviously, a hell of a lot more now. I really sort of do buy into what Potter's trying to do. Um, which also is where, you know, as I do a bit of coaching that I can perhaps understand maybe the difficulties that he has a bit more than others. Um, and I do understand sort of the long-term process and it is really hard nowadays to get people to buy into a long-term process because people will sit there and say, oh no, I'm, I'm all here for uh, good football and, and no results. But as soon as that comes to Burnley at home on a Friday night and you're, you know, you're not mm. scoring, you know, that, that, that very quickly changes people's opinions. You mentioned the aspirations to be like City and Liverpool to a certain respect but I mean to get to that level and to play that style of football successfully to put teams to the sword it requires serious investment do you think the club have that in them do you think they have the desire to actually put serious money into the playing squad to get to maybe not sitting in Liverpool's level but get to maybe that regular mid-table team playing decent football I think um, I'm aware of my biases here but I think Bryce have got one of the best recruitment departments probably in the Premier League, um, more so from a, a stance of picking up absolute gems um, in the sense of, I know, as you say, obviously th- these teams do invest quite heavily, um, whereas Brighton don't currently have the, the finances to do that. I mean, our, our record signing, um, you know, with the most we've spent on a player is, is, a, is about 20 mil. I think we've spent 10 plus mil on, I think it's less than 10 players. So you look at obviously City, Liverpool, United spending, you know, sort of three or four times that on one player. And that's quite easy to add to our whole squad, which is fine. But uh, the recruitment department has shown a really good ability to use, you know, a variety of sources um, to pick up players from widely across Europe. Of course, Pascal Gross cost us sort of three million pounds. Um, Jakob Moda and Michael Karbonik have recently been picked up from Poland, um, who, you know, are players that we're hopefully going to, uh, from a fan's perspective at least, sort of try and bring back in January. Um, Neil Wapai is someone who, you know, costs us a bit, but his payback is his return, I think, um, and doing even more so than that. Same for Adam Webster, you know, quite comfortably settled into being a, a fundamental player for us, absolutely key. So um, whilst it might not be the capacity, um, and this is obviously Tony Bloom's background with him being a professional gambler, who's who's uh, the owner of the club, um, he is more than prepared to, you know, be uh, methodical and meticulous in in how he wants the club to operate and, and maybe, you know, do the opposite of just spending loads on a player. Maybe he does want to sort of go that more left field option of really investigate um, and, and then sort of 
buy into those players who might give you, like Tarek Lampsey, who's looking like might give you value sort of uh, a few years down the line. Looks like a brilliant player, Lamptey. Absolutely fantastic. Although I was a bit confused because I always thought of him as a right back. But from what I've seen of him and what I've seen of Brighton this season, he seems to be playing more of a midfield role. In, in effect, to be honest with you, um, he is on paper. Uh, and this is where me personally, I sort of draw an issue with positions. I think that players can be very, very different. Um, however you want to classify them under sort of whatever initials to their position. Um, mm. On paper, lines up as a wing back uh, for us in most games. as sort of our, our widest player out on the right. Um, but he's he's so fast and so attack minded. I think last season he averaged, um, I think it was the, the number of difference, uh, the difference in the number of touches he had uh, in the attacking third compared to the defensive third was about two. He's that attack minded that he literally <laughs> touched the ball probably as much, if not more, this season in the opposition half than in our own half. Liverpool um, will be after him in no time. Oh, that they will, they will. Um, no, he's exceptional. The, the, the way that he uses sort of his speed uh, in, in all phases of play and in, in going forward. Um, recovering and defending, you know, he's he's really really immense to watch because there's there's situations where there'll be a loose ball and you think that, and I think it's one of the commentators was saying on the, on the Burnley game on Friday that you know he's, he's got no right to get to some of these balls, but he's just so fast um, and he, he's so confident in his speed. I mean, he's an excellent talent to watch and you know clearly loving his football. Before I let you go, Liam, I'm interested in because obviously you you look at the numbers behind games. Your account is Albion Analytics, so you're interested in the analytical side of football. And you mentioned already. Brighton may be struggling to score goals, conceding too many. And that's been the general consensus this season from many is that Brighton don't really have the firepower. But I was looking at the numbers earlier and they've scored 11 goals this season, which isn't a huge amount in the eight games they've played, but it's better than maybe half a half a dozen other teams in the Premier League. You've got Neil Mopay, who's scoring one in two at the moment. So is that really the issue? Do the numbers back that up that actually is the goal scoring that's the problem for Brighton so far this season? So the goal scoring is a weird one because um, if anyone wants to have a look at the expected goals, the XG, um, we are pretty much bang on. But this is where there's perhaps a bit of an issue with it is that we've scored three times from outside the box. I think only Villa have scored more than us so far from outside the box. Um, and we've missed quite a few decent chances that you know will rank a bit higher on the XG. So we've managed to weirdly balance out our ability to you know, maybe miss a good chance from a cross or... Um, I mean, Welbeck had a, had a good one in the first half against Burnley where you know, sort of 1v1 against Pope with the presence of a defender um, and, and missed the shot or, or Pope saved it. So we might balance ourselves out, but you know, the, the way in which we're scoring goals is perhaps quite unorthodox. Um, and obviously something that, from a statistical perspective, feels quite unsustainable. Um, and that's the one thing that I try to sort of say to Brighton fans to maybe relax them a little bit. is that probabilistically, this shouldn't continue to occur. I'm not saying it can't occur, but I'm saying the likelihood is that mm-hmm. you know, we will really start putting these away um, and from a sort of goals conceded perspective, I think we felt a bit hard done by maybe in the first sort of couple of games conceding some own goals. Um, there was a worldly strike from Reese James on the opening day, um, but we've also conceded too many penalties to my liking. Um, and I'm not going to sit here and defend any of the, the penalty rulings because they're being given at a you know massive, massively disproportionate rate this season. Um, I think the handball rule is very questionable, as are some of the decisions and maybe the inconsistency mm-hmm. with which they're applied. Um, but the reality is from if we then take the analytical perspective is, OK, we might not like the rules, but we have to follow them. So let's, you know, let's keep our hands behind our backs when we're defending crosses and let's not put our hands on players in the box. Um, let, let's, you know, do everything that we can to avoid giving penalties because uh, in the in the four games, and we've conceded penalties in, in half of our games, which is a horrific statistic. Um, and in those four, um, we've drawn one uh, and lost three. And then in the four that we haven't conceded a penalty, we've won one and drawn two. Um, and three of the four penalties that we, we conceded um, have been the opening goal in games. So put us 1-0 down at Palace, 
uh, at Spurs and I can't now for life me remember uh, Chelsea at home on the opening day um, and then the only game that we, we didn't lose in that was Palace away thanks to a last minute goal um, so yeah it really does sort of show and I think that we won't be the only team having that problem this season in relation to penalties but if we can cut those out <clears throat> pardon me as well as some um, perhaps some defensive set piece issues that we've showed uh, some some struggles at times in uh, dealing with sort of free kicks and corners um, leading some good chances but you know I think they're, they're very minor things that the majority of what Potter's got in place is very, very good. And sort of those final tweaks might be, you know, really sort of the difference between us starting to get some points uh, properly on the board. Positive green shoots. Good to end on a positive as well. Mm. Liam, nice to chat to you. I have to say, last time we spoke to someone from Brighton, it was the Albion Raw guys. And halfway through their chat, we had a seagull in the background, which was perfect. And you've let us down. I haven't heard a single <laughs> seagull. So I'm so sorry. Try harder next time. Uh, but if people want to I'll find <laughs> if people want to find out more from Albion Analytics, where can they find over on Twitter, at Albion Analytics, over on Twitter. Do do come and say hi. Come and take a look at some of the stuff we've got going over there. Um, we've got a podcast going on there as well. Uh, there's, there's a Patreon. There's loads of bits and pieces. There's loads of articles. Um, yeah, I'm sure you'll find something that you like. And if you don't, then um, I've probably just wasted a load of my time over sort of the past year and a half. <laughs> but not to worry at all. Top man, Liam. Nice to speak to you. Thank you very much. Nice to meet you guys too. That is it for today's podcast. Ian, thank you very much. Thank you. Niall, pleasure as always. Cheers, guys. Don't forget to hit subscribe so you never miss an episode of this podcast. And make sure you do leave us a review as well. Break that 30-day duck for us and we'll give you a shout-out later on the podcast. Have a good one. Football Social Daily from Sports Social. Find us on Twitter at The Sports Social. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.